Hello and welcome to Beyond Markets by Julius Baer, a series featuring conversations with experts to share recent market developments, key insights and strategic inputs from around the globe. Greetings, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Julius Baer podcast. This is Richard Tang, the China strategist and head of research Hong Kong for Bank Julius Baer. It's time again for our monthly conversation with Grow, and let me welcome Hong Hao back to our podcast to discuss China. Hao is currently the partner and chief economist of Grow. Hi, Hao. Thank you very much for your time speaking with us today. Hey, Richard. How are you? Thank you. I'm good. Firstly, thank you so much, Hao, for joining our Market Outlook seminar in Shanghai in early January that you share your valuable insights on the Chinese economy. In fact, there were quite a few changes in the economy and also the Chinese market after the event. Especially for the stock market, I thought the index was already low enough. But to my surprise, the Chinese market has actually accelerated the decline getting into the new year. The Hang Seng Index once broke below 15,000, and then the Shanghai Com went below 2,800. It also seems that the structured product positions have further worsened the selling pressure in the Chinese market. Now, obviously, investors have been monitoring the knock-ins of all these snowball products but recently, it has also started worrying about the margin financing, whether we may start to see margin calls at these levels. All of a sudden, the market sentiment was so bad that it feels like 2015. So how my first question today for you is, in terms of market sentiment, in terms of force selling, etc., do you think we close to the 2015 situation? And then my second question is, what really have caused the market to drop so badly besides the technical factors from structure policy positioning? Yeah, indeed, the market's downward spiral has uh, caught many by surprise. Obviously, right now, because the market has plunged so much, it's lost 10% first months of the year. It's probably one of the worst uh, January in a long while. So everybody was a bit surprised. And because of that, obviously, now the market's uh, trajectory is not really related to fundamentals. If you look at the valuation of the market, both in Hong Kong and Shanghai, you can see that it's at the lowest five percentile in history. So the market is extremely, extremely cheap. And then at the same time, even though the property sector in China is still struggling, but you can feel that the other sector, X property, are doing reasonably well, or they are remaining resilient. So I think as of such, right now, what we're seeing, the negative price action in the market has little to do with fundamentals, but more to do with sentiments and technical. So to compare with 2015, if you recall, I remember the 2015 bubble burst episode very clearly because I was experiencing the bubble burst process firsthand. On June 16, 2015, I published a, a note called The Great China Bubble, Lessons from 800 Years of History. So in this report, I actually pinpoint why the bubble is about to burst. And also the next six months is a critical window to monitor the bubble bursting process. Fortunately and unfortunately, there was the very day that the Shanghai composite bubble burst right, from 5,178 all the way to 2,400 in June 2016. So the bubble bursting process lasted for more than half a year. And it was a bubble in the sense that the valuation was extraordinarily high. Back then, the Shanghai Composite was valued at about 60 to 80 times price-to-earnings ratio. I think the China is valued at more than 100 times. So these are market indexes that we're talking about. So the bubble 
signs are were very obvious. And also during the bubble bursting process, there was a margin cost that could not be met. You know, because back then, because of financial innovation, there was apps on your mobile phone that make you able to leverage up with one click. Many people were leveraged up to their eyeballs. They leveraged five to ten times to buy very volatile stocks, and that's a, a recipe for disaster. So I think as the bubble burst in 2015, as the price starting to plunge rapidly, and people find it very difficult to meet margin costs, and then they have to force close out their positions at a fire sale price. And as you do that, it turns into a vicious cycle. As the price plunge, more and more margin costs could not be met, and then positions that had to be sold out at a fire sale price, then the price come down even more. So all the way until. January 2016, and then in 2016, there was a new trading rule in place instituted by the CSRC, the circuit breaker rule. But unfortunately, the stop loss limit was set too close to each other. It was five percent and seven percent, if I remember correctly. So then, because the two limit stops are so close to each other, so once the first limit was reached. Then people automatically anticipate the second limits will be reached as well, and then next thing you know, and people starting to sell when the first limit was reached. Then later on, the the entire market has to stop trading because the circuit breaker is broken. So that was 2015. I think this time, since the second half of 2023, what's different is that the market valuation is very cheap. Fundamental is not great, but you know some of the sectors, as I discussed before. They were quite resilient, right? So what's different this time is that there were rather prevalent presence of the structural product called snowball. The snowball structural product works in a way that if the market price is twenty five percent below the buying price, then you have to take delivery. But then, because many people leverage four times to buy the structural product, and so by now price. Have fallen way more than twenty five percent, so many of them has to take delivery, but they don't have the cash. And also at the same time, when a broker was selling a snowball structure product, they would automatically initiate a long position in the index futures to hedge their own positions, to hedge the snowball positions. So as the snowball become comes into money. Then they would automatically unwind the long position in the index futures as well. So as you can see, right, so there's tremendous pressure on the index futures. For example, the CSI 500 in the index future see a basis difference widen to all-time high in history. I think annualized is about 16 to 18 percent. 18 percent, it's huge. So it shows you tremendous selling pressure in the market, and unfortunately. This is a structured product, and it's quite popular among investors. I mean, who would have thought that the market would fall more than twenty-five percent in such a short time period? It has never happened in history, unless it was during the bubble burst. So that creates a substantial downward pressure and also a vicious downward cycle. And also because people weren't able to meet to take the delivery with cash, their position are closed out as well, etc., etc. So you sort of get the picture. The two episodes, even though they Were all characterized by a very vicious downward cycle in the market indices, but they're fundamentally different. And unfortunately, the Chinese policymakers are、uh, once again got into the firefighting mode. 
quite a number of policies have been rolled out already to rescue the stock market. We already had the larger than expected triple R cut. But I guess what the market is focusing on right now is the Bloomberg report that China may raise uh, 2 trillion yuan to buy A shares through the northbound stock connect. And some people are arguing that by doing this, you basically save the equity market and supporting the AVIX at the same time. Now, to be frank, I'm quite skeptical of what Bloomberg reported. But anyway, that reminds us of 2015 and how you just uh, described to us how the bubble burst happens in 2015. And then the second half of the story is obviously about national team coming in and bought the stocks. 2015 probably was the last time when the national team bought so massive amount of A shares. And then we did have two years of bull market starting from 2016. So I guess the question from some of our more bullish or more optimistic investors is that are we close to the trough already? And will we have another 2016-like bull market ahead of us? The Bloomberg report has been going around for some time now. So last October, they, it was the first time they reported it for the first time. And I think they got the win from one of the fund managers in China, who is my friend also. So I think this is the second time they reported this news, but we haven't seen any follow-through. So if you look at the sort of the whispered details of the stability uh, stabilization fund, now basically they were trying to use the offshore US dollar deposits that is being held by many of the Chinese enterprises, use it sell US dollars to buy Chinese yuan and then use the Connect scheme to buy the onshore Asia stocks. Obviously, it's a complex deal. Firstly, you are mobilizing your offshore US dollars and this US dollars for some reason hasn't been exchanged to uh, the Chinese yuan and they're sitting with this account and then you have to mobilize the Chinese enterprises to sell their US dollar holdings and then convert to yuan and then buy Chinese stocks. And then once your liquidity come back onshore, then you have to determine you know, which stocks you want to buy, etc., etc. Right, so it's quite complicated. So it requires time to strike out all the details. So right now we are seeing scant details from this news, and there's basically no follow through. And as the Chinese Lunar New Year festival is drawing near, uh, basically it's less than a week away. So and also during the Chinese Lunar New Year, nobody would be working. So everybody would be you know, on the holiday, getting together with families and friends. So you could imagine sort of a, a two weeks or maybe even longer inactivities in the market. So it's not likely, it's still possible, but not likely that you would be seeing more details within these two weeks before the Chinese New Year. But of course, we welcome with both open arms if some more details are announced. So because of that, right now, we're not pinning hope on the stabilization fund. And also, there seems to be a cap of the size of the fund if it sort of does come out later on, in the sense that there's a price cap of uh, 2 trillion yuan. 2 trillion yuan is a substantial sum of money. I think in 2015, when they tried to do the mass market rescue mission, they probably spent that much already. So it's a formidable sum. But then at the same time, because you have a fixed target in place. Once you start buying, you know, people would start thinking, well, you know, after the price rise for, for a certain period, when do I get out? And also, when does the fund start intervening the market action and start to withdraw to sell down the positions, et cetera, et cetera. 
because it's hard for me to imagine the Chinese enterprises holding a large chunk of stocks on the balance sheet. So it wouldn't be fair for their shareholders either, etc. So, so the many details you have, the more you think about it, sort of more complicated it gets. So let's just wait and see. But I think right now, many of the traders may be already off for the Chinese New Year holiday already. Yeah, it does sound very complicated to me as you go through all the details. In any case, China is never short of policy headlines anyway. And once again, we've seen a lot of them now in the property sector, particularly in recent weeks. We've seen Guangzhou and Suzhou having removed home purchase restrictions. Now, these two are both large cities. So are we going to see others doing the same? And more importantly, how? What I want to ask is that, do you think home prices and also transaction volumes may find a trough after all these restrictions are removed? I think all the restrictions should be removed. But whether that is enough to stimulate housing demand, that's a different story. So already we're seeing over the past 12 months, you're seeing we lower the down payment requirement, relax the curbs on the second or third home purchase, lower the mortgage rate, etc., etc. So also relaxing purchasing curbs in many of the cities to a certain extent. But we're doing at a piecemeal pace and it's not sort of generating enough excitement in the market. And also by now, probably people would have figured out that the uh, expectations for home price to rise further from here seems to be rather remote. Right, so this cycle is very different from the other cycle in the sense that you know, people were actually, the pessimism overhanging the housing sector is prevalent. And people seem to be reversing their expectation for home price inflation further from here. And instead, it's expecting price to come down substantially. So when you have this kind of expectation in place, then people would choose to wait and see. And I guess that is one of the reasons why there's a substantial savings, a substantial deposit in these banks' balance sheet, because people stop buying houses. And normally, housing is one of the biggest purchases that a Chinese household would buy in its lifetime. So I think right now we are in a different kind of cycle in the sense that, you know, the secular trend in the housing sector may have changed. So it requires a lot more than just cutting interest rate and relaxing purchasing curves. It requires substantially more actions than that. So I think if you look at last year's sales figure, right, so last year, the top 100 real estate developers sold 30% less house than the previous year. And also going into January, the trend seems to be continuing as well. So now we're selling probably half of the peak sales in 2021. And I think with bigger likelihood that the sales could continue to trend lower because in a sector such as this, you would be looking at overcorrection in this cycle. So I wouldn't be surprised to see, for example, the property sales for this year comes down to 8 trillion yuan in total. And also besides that, there are new supply that is coming on stream. As you can see, like not just China, I think the world is facing a supply glut in the uh, commercial real estate. I think U.S., some of the cities seeing 40% vacancy ratio. And I think many of the Chinese cities, especially in the tier one cities, they're seeing probably about 25 to 30% vacancies in many of the commercial offices buildings. Now, what they're doing right now is that they are converting many of these offices buildings into uh, residential apartments and starting to offer it on market. 
So increasingly, if you're on the Chinese internet, so you're seeing lots of listings of these converted residential apartments, huge size. Sometimes it has two thousand square, four thousand square, maybe sometimes more, at a price that is less than half of the residential real estate price. I mean, obviously, if you choose to live in one of these apartments, then you have to pay high utility bills because these are commercial buildings, but. Even so, if you look at the unit price per square feet or per square meter, it's like less than half. Sometimes it's like one third of the residential real estate unit price. So it's a huge difference, and it's a very attractive deal, and it's now all over the Chinese internet. So everybody knows, you know, there's another cheaper, better alternative that is available. So it exacerbates the oversupply situation in the residential real estate market. And on top of that, before this, we've discussed the secondary listing that is coming on stream as well. So what we find is that as you relax the purchasing curves, the secondary listings become even more. So and price is even less. So listing price is coming down, the listings are going up. So secondary housing supply plus converted office building supply, and plus the unfinished building that is still being built in China. So just imagine. The pressure from oversupply is substantial. As such, it requires a lot more than relaxing purchasing curves and cutting interest rate to get the inventory moving. Hmm, that sounds a very gloomy picture. Looks like we can't be so optimistic so soon. Another important thing in the sector is obviously the liquidation order that the Hong Kong court issued to China Evergrande. At this moment, I guess most investors believe that the offshore China Evergrande assets will be liquidated, but the onshore Evergrande group is likely not affected and will still have to complete those unfinished projects. Now, it does look like that the clean up of all these offshore debt and assets is about to begin. So my question is, how do you think this is a so-called the beginning of the end, and what do you think is the end game for all these Chinese private developers? Yeah, it could be the beginning of the end for Evergrande, but then it's the end of the beginning for the other developers. I think all the other developers are still hanging there, right? trying to sort of get by with very limited cash flow. But if you look at the cash flow gap or the cash flow shortfall. That they require to meet all the obligations into 2024, you will quickly realize that now the shortfall is even bigger, 50% bigger than 2023. So in 2024, I think altogether all the developers would need 18 trillion or or that or, or thereabout cash flow to meet all the obligations. That in, includes account payable, debt is coming due, and also interest payments, etc., etc. In 2023, I think it's about 13 to 14 trillion. So it's substantially more than what they need in 2023. And also, just now I described the supply picture in the Chinese real estate market. So it's kind of gloomy, but obviously it's good for a buyer. If you want to buy in this kind of market, you have a lot more choice at a lower price. But for the developers, it's a less optimistic picture in the sense that because you're moving your inventory substantially slower than planned. Therefore, your cash flow recycle process is slowing down, and therefore it aggravates your situation. So altogether, I think 2024 we're probably going to see more developers get into trouble. So I think one good positive takeaway from the Evergrande case is that now someone seems to be trying to find a way, you know, out of this quandary. The developers cannot 
drag its feet any longer. So it has to face the consequence. And so let's hope that the liquidation process started, all the debt holders, the bondholders, quest can be met, and it sets a roadmap of solution for other developers. Hmm, fair enough. I did hear that some of the debt restructuring process indeed accelerates a little bit more. But anyway, what we discussed on the property sector does have a very important implication to the rebalancing of the economy because now that the old driver property investment is weakening, some of the laws of the economic momentum will be partially made up by the new drivers of high-end manufacturing as well as consumption. Now, I was in Shanghai and Beijing last month visiting companies in the new energy and also high-end manufacturing sectors with some other investors. And these companies were all saying the same thing, that to maintain growth, they will have to fight for market share in the domestic Chinese market, while at the same time, they will export to the foreign market to alleviate some of those pressure from the oversupply in the industries. But frankly, most investors were doubtful of this. You see that the U.S. administration has begun to step up in all these trade barriers. And this year is the U.S. election year. I'm sure no candidates want to look soft on China. So investors are quite concerned right now that these trade risks, geopolitical risks, will meaningfully intensify. How, how do you see the outlook of the exports of all these high-value-add products? I think China is moving up the value chain. China is cutting lunch of many of the Western developed countries going into their traditional strongholds in higher manufacturing. Chinese EVs is taking market share from overseas competitors. In 2023, Chinese EV manufacturers becomes the number one exporter in the world overtaking Japan. So obviously, the semiconductor industry is developing very fast as well. The solar panel is developing very fast as well. So it's taking market share and cutting competitors to lunch. Now, it's good for China in the sense that if you look at the GDP structure in 2023, you're seeing high-value-added manufacturing industry starting to add more to Chinese GDP than Chinese real estate. So this is the structure change that we're looking for. This is the good structure going forward. And also, it's starting to establish China's place in a higher manufacturing area and also moving up the value chain. So it's also good for Chinese workers as well. Having said that, though, the challenge or the dilemma that could be arising from such a situation is that because you're taking market share and thus profits from your competitor, it will invite retaliation from your competitors. Agree. I guess we'll see these trade barriers with us for a very long time. Okay, so today we've spoken a lot of stuff and I'm aware of the time, but before we end, I still want to ask you how on the Chinese bonds, because the use of the Chinese government bonds have been continuously falling. So what expectations do you think are being reflected with the constantly declining yields? And is there any room for these yields to go down more? More likely than not, the Chinese long bond yield is going to make new low in this cycle. In the sense that if you look at the economic structure, so right now we're stimulating the economy by building up high-end, sophisticated capacity. That means that you're actually increasing upstream supply in your economic structure. And therefore, the downward pressure from excess capacity is palpable. And also, if you look at the Chinese PPI, it's been in deflationary territory for like more than a year now, for a long time now. And now we are talking about stimulating more investment into capacity building 
in many of these industries. So it's going to aggravate downward pricing pressure in the upstream. And so this kind of pricing pressure bound to be passed on downstream. And besides that, because of the consumer confidence in China still needs to be repaired, and therefore people are not spending as much as they used to. As a result, the money circulation speed, the money multiplier, and also the circulation of money in the society is slowing down. And therefore, the disinflation pressure in the downstream sectors are real as well. And that is why you're seeing negative inflation print in Chinese CPI. So if China doesn't have inflationary pressure, and also the economy is still restructuring, trying to find a new path towards future growth, and risk appetite is very low, then one shouldn't be too surprised to see new lows in Chinese long bond yield. But having said that, if you look at from a portfolio construction perspective, you think China is probably the only market where the correlation between bond and stocks is still negative. <laughs> it's quite interesting, right? So because in the US, you're seeing positive correlation, bond and stocks rise and fall together. But in China, you can easily construct a portfolio where you can long bond to offset the volatility in stocks. So it's not necessarily a bad thing. But to answer your question short, I think more likely than not, we're going to see new lows in Chinese long bond yield. Gotcha. Cool. So that's pretty much all we have to discuss today. Hao, thank you very much for your sharing. And ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. Stay tuned for our next podcast. Also, for those who celebrate the Chinese New Year, we wish you a prosperous and healthy Year of Dragon. Goodbye and speak soon. You have been listening to Beyond Markets by Julius Baer. If you like what you've heard, please tell us by leaving a review and rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Subscribe to Beyond Markets on your favorite podcast player to stay up to date with our latest episodes. To learn more about Julius Bayer, our people, our latest thinking, visit us at www.juliusbayer.com. We will be back with a brand new episode soon. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast constitute marketing material and are not the result of independent financial or investment research. Please refer to www.juliusbear.com/legal/podcast for further important legal information.